we're approaching the end of season three of Masala Podcast. And I have a very special episode for you. Masala Podcast is all about the women in our culture, the bad beities. So on this episode, I'm speaking with the women behind South Asian Heritage Month, a fantastic month-long festival with events and talks and webinars, all celebrating our rich, diverse South Asian culture. You'll be hearing from Dr. Benita Kane, Anita Rani, Ruby Bakari, and Natasha Janejo. Benita is co-founder of South Asian Heritage Month, as well as a consultant respiratory physician in Manchester. Anita is founding patron, as well as a very well-known TV and radio presenter. Ruby is the events lead, a young British Punjabi entrepreneur. Natasha is literary lead and founder of South Asian Writers. I loved this chat so much. I loved hearing Benita, Anita, Ruby and Natasha. I hope you do too. Being South Asian, it's in my bones. It's in my blood. I was born in my grandparents' house in deep rural Kerala. I moved to Mumbai with my parents when I was a year old. And I now live in the UK, having moved here 16 years ago. So being South Asian for me isn't a singular identity. It's a mix of multiple cultures, so many sights and sounds and smells. That special aroma of the Mumbai monsoon hitting dry, parched ground. The taste of my mother's appams, light as air, fresh of a hot cast iron griddle. The taste of freedom as I cycle past the canals in East London, living my London life. So being South Asian, it is who I am and who I always will be. Let's start, Benita. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, what your background's like. So I was born in North Wales, which surprises many people because I don't sound Welsh. But I was, um, I grew up in a very rural setting in a little village, beautiful scenery, green fields. And I had a very happy childhood. Uh, it was a very white community at that time. There wasn't very, there wasn't much diversity in North Wales. So we were always a little bit different. Well, I've been on quite some journey. So from it really, from me not really paying much attention to being a South Asian woman, uh, and not really knowing what South Asia was. And I think many people still don't realize that there are eight countries in South Asia. Uh, I have since my (laughs) epiphany in 2017, uh, become incredibly proud of my heritage and the contribution of my dad and then subsequently, you know, myself, my brother, who's also a doctor in in the NHS and our contribution to the UK. I think being a South Asian woman, um, things are changing. I think it's been a long journey, but in my career, I am now in positions of leadership and I think the higher up the, the ladder I've got, the more I become aware of it, uh, the fewer people like me I see in those positions or in the meetings that I'm in. But that is changing. And I'm I'm so happy that our new chief exec of the hospital I work at is a South Asian woman. And that is just incredible for someone like me to see that that's possible. Um, so, yes, there have been challenges along the way. I think I have to work that bit harder to gain the same respect and the reputation of colleagues who aren't South Asian or are male. But I've also been very lucky that I've had very strong support along the way. And I think that's important. I've had some white male professors who have really championed my work and helped push me to where I am Uh, and I think that's incredibly important as well you've got to have people who believe in you and and can uh, support you in the right direction and I try and do that for others now you know particularly young trainees coming through Um, and I'm trying to do work around race as well um, because it's something that people don't like to talk about and I'm trying to have open conversations about it with junior doctors, with, you know, different forums, really, uh, and trying to do my bit to sort of change the culture 
because I think most, you know, there's no overt racism. You know, no one's calling you names. It's those microaggressions. It's the the unconscious bias that we 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 experience on a daily, weekly basis. You know, it's when I'm I'm on a ward round and somebody comes and starts talking to the the male junior doctor next to me because they they don't think I'd be the consultant. You know, it's those sort of things or it's the patient walking into the room and seeing you and thinking oh I'm here to see the consultant (laughs) and they do a double take until you introduce yourself it's those little things that are the challenges but you know I, I overall I think things are getting better slowly I think for me because I was in that mold when I was growing up where I didn't embrace my heritage and my culture and I just wanted to fit in I had I was I had all white friends when I got to university in Manchester, I was actually then discriminated against by the Asian people <laughs> because I got called coconut. And so, you know, it's that bit where you're you're not white enough to be white, but you're too white to be brown. And I was very much in, in that space. And I, I just didn't understand why these groups of Asians were just hanging around with other Asians. But of course, many of them had grown up in cities and they hadn't known any anything different and and naturally that's what they did when they got to university so there is that real sort of identity crisis that I don't think I I really made peace with until quite recently um and yeah I think within within the culture um different communities one of the things I have come to recognize is that we're still very segregated as communities in the UK you know you still have your Bangladeshi communities your Pakistani community Indian communities and everyone's doing Independence Day separately and one of the things that I learned on my journey was the shared heritage that actually you know before India the subcontinent was split yes there was unique identities within the Asian subcontinent of course there were but actually there was it was all one and People weren't divided on religious grounds. Um, I wondered if you would tell us a little bit about kind of how you grew up, where you grew up, you know, navigating this world of being Indian at home and being British outside, you know? I think so many people who grew up in Britain, so many second generation kids will relate to that. Uh, So I grew up in a place called Bradford, which is in West Yorkshire. Gorgeous Yorkshire, the most beautiful county in Britain. Absolutely stunning. Um, And there's a real history of uh, lots of mills. um, At the turn of the last century, it was one of the wealthiest cities in the country. There was a great amount of wealth in the north. You had Bradford, which was big for its wool trade. And then Manchester for cotton, which I'm sure lots of people listening in India will maybe they've heard about. Well, people in India will have heard of Bradford, I'm sure. But, you know, these are the places where a lot of first-generation men landed because that's where the work was. So my grandfather actually came to London, went to Birmingham first. I think he just had far too many relatives in Birmingham, then wound his way up to Bradford. And that's where my grandma arrived with my father and his twin sister, who were only four. So my dad was super young when he got here. And then, um, yeah, had my four aunts and uncles. And then I was born. And I loved it. Had this... I mean, Bradford, Yorkshire is, I'm so happy that I've got this uh, understanding of uh, Northern British culture. It's very different to the rest of the country. It's very different to London. I mean, London is its own entity in itself. It's very different to anywhere else in Britain. Um, But there's definitely a very distinct culture. And yeah, I had to live this life where I was very Indian at home or, you know, that's where I learned to be Punjabi. My mum is from India, got married to my dad, came from India, met him at Heathrow Airport, absolute arranged marriage. Saw a photo of each other. And so they brought me up in, I had really, my dad's really, really, he's a Yorkshireman. So I've got these two parents with very distinct cultures. So, you know, we did all the things that Indian people do. We, you know, my culture was my culture, very Punjabi. And then I went to a very white uh, girls' school, posh private girls' school. And then you learn that nobody's really interested in your Indianness. If anything, it's not going to do you any favors to be too Indian. So you dial it down. And that's why my parents sent me to that school, because they wanted me to learn to behave in a certain way and to understand how middle class white people roll. I say, you know, we were told that if we assimilated and that's what was required of us, you know, we behave in the right way. We become to use a phrase from an amazing book by Nika Shukla, you know, a collection of essays, become the good immigrant, do everything right. Don't speak with an accent, you know, educate ourselves 
work hard, um, bring up your kids well, educate your children. But actually, ultimately, you get into the workplace and it doesn't matter because they still are not going to see you as their equal, sadly. I think women like you are changing that. Slowly but surely, that's happening. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there's a generation of us now that have come of age, right, Sangeeta? Yeah, absolutely. We um, we don't want to... A generation of us have come of age. We're not our parents' generation who very much had to keep their heads down, get on with it. Not everyone's parents did this. A lot of parents really empowered their young children. But mine definitely were like, don't rock the boat. That's how you're going to get ahead. Just work hard, work hard and be very positive all the time. But, you know, now it's like, actually, that's fine. But it hasn't done me any favors because I've got all these feelings pent up inside me that I need to get out. Right? I can't keep my head down anymore. And so lots of people have started speaking out. There's some amazing voices who've started calling stuff out. And it's just it's given a, uh, everyone else, a lot of us a reason, the ability to speak our truth. So I born in Denmark. Born uh, in Denmark. That's yeah. interesting. Born in Denmark, raised there. So till I was about six or seven years old. Then came we came to the UK, moved to Birmingham. And then whilst we were in Birmingham, we bounced around quite a bit. Um, those are different places, um, huge different culture shock. Danish lifestyle is very different to British lifestyle. And then we kind of settled down in like Aston Perry Barway. And when I was 16, uh, I left. I, I left to go to Wales for a year. And then from Wales, I went straight to London. And I've been in London, I think, longer than I've been in Birmingham. <laughs> so I class myself as a Londoner now. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm from Birmingham unless I'm like trying to have an argument with someone. I'm like, don't mess with me. I'm from Birmingham. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, very interesting kind of like identity. Yeah. It's very difficult to explain to someone really fast. It's just like, I'm actually Danish, British, but... It, and then also Punjabi heritage as well. That's true. That's so true. my family's from Pakistan, Punjab, um, which is which is not a huge demographic here in the UK. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we're, we're not. There's not a lot of us. 70% of the Pakistanis in the UK are from the Azad Kashmir side. Didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So what was it like growing up in all of these different places? Interesting. And I wouldn't change it for the world. I absolutely wouldn't change it for the world. But it's very hard on a child as well. You know, bouncing from school to school, not speaking the language, not and because Danish culture, you know, they had one of their highest standards of life. Their healthcare system is really good. Education system is really good. And then you go from Copenhagen to small Heath. And that's a huge shock mm-hmm. for any kid. Um, and it was like... And also, for the first time, I felt how powerful your immediate surroundings can be um, and the the real kind of um, influence they can have on a person. And I started feeling this as a kid. And the class system only really started influencing my life when we moved to the UK. You know, I I've, I understood what it meant, what it means to be working class, um, and and the disadvantages there as well. And but then you have the language barrier. You know, I didn't speak English when I came here, and I had to learn it through music. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, but then moving around to to Aston and building a community there, a huge strong community there, um, which are a huge important part of my life now. And then you you go from that to go to a boarding school in Wales and you meet all these rich kids who are sent to this school as a punishment. <laughs> and you've got a scholarship. So you're thinking, you know, I'm going to have this wonderful adventure. I know you're surrounded by rich kids who don't want to be there. I think one of the things that our community has done is when they migrated over, they held on to their culture. You know, I sometimes see my cousins and people I meet from Pakistan or um, respective countries back home and they've moved on. You know, they're they're a bit more liberal in certain senses than we are. And folks here are still holding on to that culture because that's a key aspect of their identity. And it is, but it's not our whole identity. You know, these rules and regulations isn't what makes us us. But unfortunately, in the last hundred years, we've gone through major colonization. We've 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 gone through the partition, we've gone through migration patterns, we've gone through so much that our culture in itself has been um watered down. We're seeing it through a very specific lens now. You know, our relationship with art and literature is absolutely beautiful. Yet do we encourage our children to go study art and literature? No. We want doctors and lawyers and engineers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But we come from a culture yeah. of wonderful artwork. I would love for us to be celebrated, championed. 
I would love for us to be, have the space, have a platform to live our lives on our terms, you know? And ultimately, I want to see the younger generation of South Asian women not go through the struggles that we had to go through and not go through the nonsense that we had to go through as well. The flaw flaw that we don't need in our lives. The flaw flaw. <laughs> this is me, what me and my sister say. <laughs> you don't need it. <laughs> and, and to essentially be independent, happy, stable, and live their lives on their terms. That's, that's all you truly, I truly want. You know, to but also to have the resources as well. You know, and the to backing walk in, and the support. Yeah, to walk into a room and and feel like I belong in this room, but like you are seen through this fetishized gaze. You know, you're seeing through as oh, you come from the land of Kama Sutra. You know, I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> or you're seen as um, this Bollywood princess. Yeah, um, and quite often. I think as well, there's a, there's a huge battle that goes on within yourself because whilst Bollywood and the media, the South Asian media, it loves to show women as feisty and fiery and they stand up for themselves. Unfortunately, our culture does not allow that. The reality is very different. No, exactly. And then you're, you're in the UK or you're in a Western country and you do, ha- I mean, I'm going to say it because I think it's completely, we have the privilege of rebelling. You know, we have the privilege of pushing boundaries. It might be mentally exhausting. It might be emotionally exhausting. But there are places where you can go. There, There's universal credit. You know, there's support systems in place, um, which they're, they're not in South Asian countries. And so then, you know, quite often I see with women, South Asian women, you start going through this huge battle within yourself, this whole unlearning of trying to actually truly understand what it, what rights you have, what you're entitled to. And if even if that is respect, you know, I, it took me a very long time to say to people, no. <laughs> yeah. And things, things like that, I think. But then also, I think we get the best of both worlds. I don't think it was until, I think, my late 20s and early 30s that I fully started to embrace my South Asian-ness. And I think... Being third culture, sort of growing up, being born in Britain and being raised here, it's a really strange interplay you have with your identity because ultimately your parents are bringing with them a culture that is this microcosm of an experience that they had within their community. And it's from the 70s, the 60s, 70s and 80s. And then you are raised within all of the ideology and all of the cultural um, influences of that culture. But then, of course, back home, the culture moves on. And so you're in this time capsule that you're raised in with all of its um, all of its conventions and all of that. And then you're also straddling British culture, which is so, um, so different and it's so opposite. And, and you, you almost feel divorced from your, your brownness when you're growing up. And I think we're at the age now where we're trying to piece everything back together. And that includes um, unpacking all the shame around being made to feel that we were implicitly lesser, our culture, our food, our music, the way our homes smell, the way our languages were were colonised away from us in this education system because we were told we wouldn't develop um, if we spoke. We were bilingual, which is, of course, nonsense, but we know that now, but we grew up in institutional systems where this post-colonial legacy existed um, and still does today but it was unabashed then so we lost so much of who we were and and it's only now I'm in my 30s that I'm reconnecting all of those dots and actually sitting in my brownness and sit and, and really enjoying it really really loving it and and even when I used to just go I used to just think I was Asian British Asian and now it's about um being Pakistani, but being half Sindhi, half Punjabi, the fact that I'm cross-cultural within that, that with the, the diaspora has more intersections in it. The fact that that includes more languages, more food, more different things. The fact that Sindh, uh, where my dad is from, sits across India and Pakistan, and that has its own rich, complex history. And I want to know all about it, and I want to see everything about it, and I want to put it in front of everyone that comes after us, and and I want us to love and celebrate who we are. So my relationship to my 
South Asian-ness and, and being a woman as well. It's become something that is so empowering and it's become something that we used to be folded into silence, I think, as brown women. And there is this wonderful cacophony of, of, of Asian, South Asian women and brown women in general just roaring at the moment. I think we've reached this nexus point in time and it's, you can feel it in the air and it's wonderful. I love it. It's a, it's a very, very happy and very much in love with, with our brownness at the moment. And I hope it continues. I was at an event at the House of Commons in July 2019. It's the first time I heard the words South Asian Heritage Month. It was literally the first time in all my 16 years in the UK that I'd been in a room full of people who looked like me, all talking about getting South Asian history and heritage front and centre in the UK. It's where I first met the team behind South Asian Heritage Month, Benita Kane, Jaswir Singh, Anita Rani, and many others. I remember the conviction in their voices as they spoke. I've always struggled with belonging. I never felt like I fully belonged in India, where I spent most of my adult life. I never felt like I fully belonged here in the UK either. So belonging is a complicated word for me. It's still very much a work in progress. But seeing all the incredible events and talks throughout South Asian Heritage Month over these past two years, I'm starting to feel a little less like I don't belong. Tell me about South Asian Heritage Month. First of all, why do we need a South Asian Heritage Month? And kind of how did it start for you? Tell us a little bit about that. Things changed for me in 2017 when I took part in a BBC One documentary called My Family, Partition and Me. And it was just an incredible journey. Uh, I was one of uh, three second, third generation Asians that was taken back to retrace what happened to my family during the partition of India in 1947. And I was the first member of my family in 70 years to go back to the village where my father was born and had to flee from what was essentially a you know, genocide where the Hindus were being ethnically cleansed. And I, I went back to that village and I met people who remembered my family uh, and remember my granddad who, who tragically died short, shortly after they, they had to flee. And it was just this kind of moment where I was in this village 5,000 miles away, kind of and the villagers were saying to me, you're, you're a daughter of this village. And I, I really felt kind of something quite profound, a profound connection with that place. And I remember bringing back some of my granddad's soil, you know, the earth, the land that he owned. And I brought, brought that back and that sits in, in my lounge now. I've got this connection with that. And I'd never felt that before. I'd never felt it. And I think when I came back, I just, I'd learned so much history and I'd learned I mean, I knew the basics of partition, but I had no idea what a huge event it was. You know, 15 million people displaced overnight, up to 2 million people, including my grandfather, died. And it was a very British story. I mean, and, and, a, and a, such a fascinating story of how it happened. And I thought, how have I never been taught this stuff? Why do I not know this? And then, you know, discovering that kind of one in 20 of us actually in this country can can trace our heritage back to South Asia. And there is this really rich bond between Britain and South Asia, which has almost been lost in, 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 in the modern narrative. And so I felt very passionately that I wanted to do something about that. I felt it was wrong. I, have I been going through life with my eyes closed or, or have people never told me that this is important? And so I started originally a campaign around education so trying to get south asian history more prominently taught in schools and then that led to uh, you know um thoughts around commemoration like why do we not commemorate the partition of india and those 2 million that that died and then i teamed up with jasvir singh um the amazing jasvir singh who's our who's the co-founder with with me of south asian heritage month and we thought we'd bring celebration into it as well. And that's how the concept of South Asian Heritage Month was born. So our strap line is now 
celebrate, commemorate, educate. Uh, and our goal is to do all of those things. And I wish we didn't need a South Asian Heritage Month. I wish this was just part of our society and that everyone, we didn't need to educate um, and we didn't need to celebrate all things about South Asia because it already happens. And maybe we will get to that point in the future. But right now, that's why it's needed. But, you know, I guess the, the success of it was only because thousands and millions of people engaged with us. I mean, the hashtag at the end of last year, even though we sort of launched it very last minute because of the pandemic, um, it was all done online. We didn't really have much of an infrastructure set up. It was, you know, we, didn't have, we, we don't have any funding. So it was kind of, you know, a hashtag, Jasphere, myself, Anita Rani got involved and really helped promote it uh, and some uh, some partners who, who were supporting us at the time. And it just blew up and and the whole thing was done on goodwill um passion and by the end of the four weeks we had made over 87 million impressions with the hashtag and and the success is only because of all the incredible people who got behind us and we're only as as good as the sum of all our individual parts Yeah, so this came about, so it launched last year, but the conversation has been going on for a little while. So I made a documentary called Who Do You Think You Are, which is a really popular TV show um, where you trace your family roots and history. And I discovered that mine is about, I'm from Punjab, so the partition is very much part of my family history. And I found found out some really tragic stuff that my Nanaji's first wife and father and two children were killed and he was left completely alone. So made that documentary, but I felt I had unfinished business because I wasn't able to, like the sad legacy of partition, one land, one people, you drew people somewhere, politicians draw a line, and then it takes me eight months to be able to get a visa to go to Pakistan. That's the sad tragedy legacy, that if you're Indian, getting into Pakistan and vice versa is really difficult. But I came up with this idea for a program, it was the 70th anniversary of partition, to tell the story of partition through the experience of all the different key players. So a Sikh story, a Hindu story, a Muslim story, and crucially, a white British story as well. And Benita was the Hindu story. Her father um, was a child and they were living in what became Bangladesh. And actually, it was a Muslim family that helped them escape. His father was a doctor. It's a very, very powerful story. Benita, born and brought up in Britain, very anglicized, I would say, as most a lot of us are, but I'd never really said, never gone back. And it just, I think it completely changed her, as it did for all of us. I got to Pakistan to see where my grandfather's home was. And then Benita, you know, took it, uh, we were talking about how do we get partition put on the curriculum? What can we do? Da, 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 da. And cut a long story short, Benita, along with Jashvir Singh, created South Asian Heritage Month. It's a, a month where the country is given the opportunity to think about what about South Asians, history, heritage, culture, but crucially who we are here and what what we add to the landscape here. And I'm the um, founding patron. So yes, it's it's exciting. So this will be the second year and we want it to grow and grow and grow and become embedded and just everybody just know. And of course we should celebrate being South Asian all all year, not just in a month, but it's like Black History Month or Pride Month. You know, you have a reason to, for everyone to think about that. South Asian Heritage Month, my relationship with it is very personal. I I see it like my little baby now, you know. Um, I'm not the founder of South Asian Heritage Month. That's Jasper Singh and Dr. Benita Kane. But I joined the team three to four weeks before the first South Asian Heritage Month kickoff. Umar, my best friend, sent me this thing on Twitter saying, hey, Rubes, like uh, they're looking for people to do some events. I think you should do it. Um, I messaged Benita, um, Benita and I had a conversation and I think immediately Benita could tell that I have got a million ideas. I want to do loads of things. I'm really passionate. I've got loads of experience. Um, and she's like, okay, cool. Jump on board. And I kind of just shaped my own <laughs> role and like responsibility there. And by the end of like week two, I was the events coordinator. Um, and I think in in about three to four weeks, if not three weeks, you know, I had helped curate like 60 different events, um, build a whole social media platforms um, and trying to network with as many people as possible. I remember calling you. Well, you were one of the first people I called. 
um, trying to get the the workshops involved, and it's just gone from there. It's it's it started off something very simple of me just trying to do events to turning into okay, let me find people in our community who are doing incredible things. How can we shine a light on them? How can we celebrate them? How can we champion them? It's not just about me anymore. It's about the responsibility that you have in this position to showcase the magical work that's going on around us. But then also the responsibility to have the conversations that we we are actually ready to have. Last year, we did phenomenally well. And even the, the panel discussions where the topics were a bit uncomfortable, they were so well received. And I've seen a knock-on effect of that. There's conversations we had on colorism on and now I've seen so many young individuals actually having those conversations forward. It, I think it was a huge catalyst. I'm not saying that we were the first people to talk about colorism or any of the other issues. But I think we were the first people um, to do it in a festival-like format where you have over 100 different events going on. Where, and it's also a lockdown. So you've got, kind of got people's attention. You know, they don't have these worldly distractions. Um, and people are just stuck at home with nothing else to do. So let me just participate in this. And that's what my kind of relationship with South Asian Heritage Month has become now. I've, it's, a, it's a sense of responsibility. It's a sense of um, where I want to see it grow. I want to see it become a safe space for all of us, regardless of backgrounds and ethnicities and um, sexuality. I want it to be a safe space for all of us. It's our space, you know, it's specifically curated for us. Um, and that's kind of my relationship with it now. I founded uh, South Asian Writers, and that was a hashtag that went viral in 2017. And um, I just wanted to decolonize my book list. So I'm, I'm, I'm sick, so I have a connective tissue disease, and I was on immunosuppressive therapy at the time, so I couldn't leave the house. And I just wanted to read more and expand my my reading that was beyond the sort of white <clears throat> the the white lens as it were and and I was a freelance writer and I wrote under a pseudonym so I knew a couple of writers on brown twitter and I was like I know there's loads out here because I see you but I don't see you on my bookshelf so I invited people to to introduce themselves using that hashtag one weekend in, two, in 2017 um, and I just said, show me, you know, link me to work, show me pictures of your book jackets, show me pictures of you. I just need to, I just want to see you. And then within one long weekend, um, 3.9 to 4 something million people engaged with that hashtag. And it was from all over the world. And my phone melted, my phone melted and died because it was just, it and then I had a DM from the organisers of South Asian Heritage Month asking me if I would promote um, some of the literature activity that was happening. And then I just messaged back going, hi, do you need a hand with this? What, what do you need? And then they said, because of COVID, it wasn't going to be a physical festival anymore. And it was all going to be online. And I said, well, I'm a house cat. I can help you with online. My entire life is online. And, and so I just started helping out with the, the lit side of things. And because I have a background in that area already because I've been writing for 10 years and because I had contacts as well in that area already, I was able to facilitate conversations that could, um, that could bring in um, partnerships and that could, that could, that I could speak to other writers and just say, would you like to, would you like to showcase some of your work? And it was something that was very natural and a very um, a, sort of a very organic way to, to start, including people and get the ball rolling and then I was uh, leading the, the literature program and and have, the literary arm has become this entire um animal of its own and and the reason that it's separate to the wider program um and does take elements from the wider program as well is because as much as we celebrate who we are and what we've done and we talk about the work there is so much here um there is so much inequity here in terms of how much of our stories are being told, how, how many black and brown stories are being put in front of children that are in schools. Um, 
And, and how, how many children know about the truth of our history? There are writers writing about figures in, of, of, in South Asian history. There are writers writing about the truth of our colonial past, like Satnam Sanghera. There are writers like Shobani Basu and Sophia Ahmed who are writing about figures, feminist icons, South Asian superheroes, the first female SOE officer in the Second World War, Nora Knight Khan, that is not on the curriculum. And when I talk to children in schools, they don't know who she is. And then I get emails from them going, who is that lady? Can you recommend that book to me? And and it shouldn't be this way. And that's why the, the I think the lit side of things has become about education. And the lit side of things, our theme this year is what world are we reflecting back to children through our stories? And what does this then tell them about what they can dream for themselves? It's been such a humbling experience to be sat here and to be able to bring this to people um it's it's been extraordinary so i've had the schools i've spoken to are changing um their their english uh, literature programs to include more books that are on our book list so we have a book list um this year that has a um, memoir and um and fiction section, an LGBTQ plus section, a YA and children's section, and a poetry and nonfiction section, and 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 people are so excited and so happy to have a reference point for for how they can change and decolonize their bookshelves. And libraries across London and across the country are asking how which books they need to buy which books they need to stock their shelves with. And so I then get to call up authors and some of whom as well who have self-published. One of the, the greatest honours that I have in this position is to be able to call up authors who have self-published their book and say, hi, um, this library and this library and this library and this library have asked me which books that I want to recommend and I've told them yours. So you'll be getting X amount of orders in the next couple of weeks. And they, and it's just so it's just so lovely because... You know, there's so many stories that have been self-published about partition because what we have left of it is oral. But then to talk to councils and to and to present about our history, why it's important um, and to encourage people to internally people are there this month. Their South Asian staff has been sharing their stories on internal networks and blogs and saying why it's important. They've been holding events in in commercial spaces in council spaces in in in, in, in just pub, public um government spaces and it's it's really it is an absolute joy to see how how much enthusiasm there is around around not just the literature program around this month around people wanting to engage with our history our legacy and our contribution to this country we have apple tv had an entire section of south asian heritage month features on on their landing page i've been speaking to audible audible now every year will have a south asian heritage month section when it's and it, and it's just you know soon we'll do netflix we will i'll go we'll get there <laughs> but it's just you know i was talking to my mom about this the other day and i have a a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old niece, and I was saying what I want is for her to switch on her television, open her books, turn on her computer, turn on her laptop, or open her phone, and to see this month, to see everything that she recognises as as um, these huge industry bodies. I want her to see every year that those those different industry bodies celebrating her celebrating who she is and what she looks like because there was such an absence of that um and we were we were at a loss for that i think we've had to overcome that the coded messaging that comes along with this world is not for you this space is not for you because there's nobody here that looks like you and i i, I it's been it's been an extraordinary thing. It really has, and the author talks that we've been doing have been have been so so great. And the audience comments that we're getting and the feedback that we're getting it's just it's really wonderful to be able to bring um, sort of industry heavy hitters to um, communities of people that want to to link up with them, but then also be 
this bridge between schools, councils and libraries that want to engage with our work and our material, but don't know how to do that. And then there are communities of tens of thousands of readers on Instagram and BookTok and things like that, that are desperate for brown stories and they and they want all of this and and the publishers don't know where they are and and the children in schools want to follow those accounts but don't know where they are and sort of this month is this wonderful nexus point and this convergence where you get to go hi you talk to him oh okay you talk to her you all need to meet each other everybody talk everybody get in this space and and that's really what um my my function is this year and and every year it's to put all of those all of those lovely hearts and minds together and get them excited about each other's stories. COVID, one little word, such a big impact in all our lives. So much trauma, so many deaths, so much fear and such loneliness. COVID affected all of us in different ways. For our South Asian community, we were told that we were more at risk, that we should not be celebrating our festivals, visiting our relatives, mixing with one another. For a culture that is all about celebrating and mixing and mingling, COVID was particularly hard. But it was also a time of coming together, if not in person, then online. I know of so many South Asian folks playing Antakshari online, doing Bollywood quizzes on WhatsApp, organizing cooking sessions via Zoom. So COVID, it happened. It was tough. Here's to things getting better, slowly but surely. Benita, I'd love to hear from you what it's been like being a South Asian doctor working in the NHS during COVID. I wonder if you could talk about the emotional impact of COVID. Because in our culture, seeing our family and our friends is such a big part of who we are. I have to say that working as a UK doctor during the pandemic has just been so eye-opening in so many ways. I've learned so much about the scale of the inequalities that we see in society and the fact that South Asians and and Black people have been so disproportionately affected by COVID has thrown open those health inequalities, those inequalities in in society in a way that we have never seen before. We've always known that these exist, but they've never been at the forefront in the way that they have. And in many ways, whilst it's been absolutely tragic and horrific for the families and the people involved. It's been a real wake-up call for the NHS and I'm really hoping that off the back of this there's going to be some really serious work to try and tackle some of the issues that we've we've seen. Well, what is clear that race itself has no genetic basis. So skin colour is the amount of melanin in your skin, it's just a pigment And it has no, you know, there isn't a black gene and a white gene or a brown gene. And so the inequalities that we see are more due to societal, political, cultural, historical issues. And um, what you what what we know is that there's higher proportions of people of color living in deprived areas, there's higher proportions in frontline jobs, not just in the NHS, but bus drivers and people who encounter the public more. When you bring in institutional racism as well, perhaps people of colour are less likely to speak up about not being protected. There's this whole host of factors that come together to make a perfect storm, which means people of colour struggle more. And then when you look at wider society and air pollution and and health in general, poverty and all those social determinants of health then predispose South Asians to those conditions that make you more likely to die from COVID, like the diabetes and the high blood pressure and those factors. So it's really, really complex. And people have tried to simplify it by saying, you know, oh, it's to do with vitamin D levels. So there is no, there is no hard evidence to support those theories and maybe it is a small factor but race itself 
does not make anybody more prone to anything. It's all of those other factors. It's been really hard because we know what happened the night before Eid with uh, all of the Eid celebrations effectively being being cancelled. That was a very deliberate move. We've seen what happened with Diwali, uh, people not being able to celebrate with their families. And then we saw what happened with Christmas, which was allowed to go ahead. And that messaging to the public that you are less important and your religion and your faith faith is less important, it just erodes, it just chips away at communities that already have a lack of trust in structures and that people want the best for them. And I think that leads us into another issue as well, that there have been huge concerns from different uh, populations because of the historical mistrust of systems about seeking help and that people are not given information in culturally appropriate ways and therefore they don't access the help. So I'll give you an example. We have set up a long COVID clinic um, locally and something like 85-90% of of the referrals have been from white Caucasian for white Caucasian people. But yet we know that South Asians and black people were were affected more. And is that because South Asians don't get long COVID or is it because they are not accessing the services in the way? And then what we also see within the South Asian population is there's a hierarchy as well in terms of how bad the inequalities are. So the Bangladeshi population uh, will have, uh, you know, in terms of outcomes and vaccination uptake were you know, the the lowest, uh, then followed by Pakistani, then followed by Indian. So, uh, and then below Bangladesh was with the black population. So even within, you know, this is why we dislike this term BAME because it lumps us all together. But even within that, there's this hierarchy, which we have to tackle. Um, And it's been very, very interesting seeing that playing out over the last 18 months. I think one really good thing that has come out of COVID is that we've realised how much, I mean, we know representation matters, but this is how much representation matters. So I was quite involved in doing work with uh, a big national group to try and improve uptake in vaccination rates in the South Asian community. And South Asian Heritage Month hosted a big vaccination event in February. And What made a difference was having trusted people that look and speak like the community that they're representing, giving them the information in a relatable way, in different languages, addressing very specific cultural concerns. And what that did collectively was it massively improved the rates of vaccine uptake. I mean, it was a huge, huge collective effort, really helped that the Chief People Officer for the NHS is Prerana Issa. She's a lady of South Asian heritage and she has phenomenally led that whole piece of work. And without that, if we hadn't had someone like her in that position who pulled together this big national group who then tackled this in in multiple different ways, it wouldn't have happened. But what is sad is that it took something like this for that to happen because actually these inequalities have been there all the time. And it was only when the whole population's health depended on it that the effort was put in from the top to really try and engage with South Asian communities. Why has it taken a global crisis for that to happen when we know that health outcomes have been poor for these groups for a long, long time? Well, we know that there is a higher incidence of uh, COVID within South Asian families because we live in big joint families. Um, and there's numerous reasons for that. You know, a lot of people who are doing the jobs that they couldn't stop doing, driving buses, taxis, keeping the cleaning, you know, working in hospitals, um, they are done by people from ethnic minorities. And so there is that. Add to that a mistrust of, let's say, the authorities and how you're going to be treated when, how historically you've been treated by even the NHS. So there's a mistrust. So there's that. (laughs) Yeah. And then the domestic violence. I think there's probably a lot of South Asian women who are suffering in pretty horrible situations who were even more trapped than before. Um, So, yeah, I do think it, it affected us differently. And these are the nuanced conversations that you just don't hear on the news. Family is everything. Yeah. And we do check, we check up on, 
your parents everyone is so connected yeah so connected and the idea that you can't go and see your parents I mean for everybody for everyone that was difficult um but you know a lot of South Asians still live in joint families as well yeah Yeah. and the idea that you can't just pop around to go and see your cousins yeah it's so scary because it's like our community is so at risk like we're a very high risk community and I think that it's made everyone I know has just become extremely protective of their elders incredibly protective of their elders but I also know that we're very stubborn as a community so it was very very difficult to get um to get people um mobilized in terms of the vaccines and there was so much um so much harmful messaging and misinformation around the vaccines and that's why south asian heritage month we we did the covid vaccine event and even my my mum was you know the whatsapp auntie chats so uh, oh god the the things that were floating around in those chats and then my mum would post them to the family chats and we'd all just be like oh god okay i'll call her and it was And it would, and I would just talk through, and I would go through everything that was said, and then I would talk through everything, and I would just go, okay, well, this is why this doesn't make sense, and I, and I, this is something that is playing on your fear, and and the the thing that it plays on is the fear and mistrust of, um, of 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 the medical community with the people of color, because habitually this feeds into a, a habitual. Um, basically convention where we are often sidelined and the care has not always been um as as well as as comprehensive as it should be and that's something that communities of color face a great deal so implicit trust in 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 a body like this is something that you're already on the back foot with and so then going hey take all of these vaccines and we we develop them immediately and and it will make everything better. And then when you hear someone from your community saying no, you're more inclined to listen to your community. And and it took us, I'm so proud of Benita because she is, um, for putting that event together, because she is a an NHS, uh, she's a respiratory consultant. She's a lung doctor. She is so well-informed on this. She is the person to advise on this. And she put together an extraordinary panel all all specialists in their fields and all from the South, or every area of the South Asian diaspora as well. This is why I love her. And and it was people from our community. I got my mum on it. We, you know, everyone was like, we, we just said, if your grandparents don't know how to work the iPad, go over, get the iPad on, sit with them. And, and we got so many people um, basically asking questions. We invited them to ask questions. And so many people afterwards felt so reassured. And we had so many comments after afterwards. And my mum went straight away and got the job. And that, to me, was enough. That, to me, was enough. Because now I feel I feel safer. And I'm sure so many other people do as well. Because we're already losing the generation that went through partition. And, and this whole situation, it just reminds you of what is precious and, and, and what we need to hold on to. And the idea of another thing impacting our community like we're just like we're done we can't we can't do we can't take anymore and and I hope that it's I hope that things are getting better but it is scary the reason we couldn't do any physical events this year is because we were advised you are a high-risk community encouraging people to gather together en masse during a pandemic when you are a high-risk group as as South Asian people is irresponsible and so we always have to bear that in mind in terms of the programming and events. But it is it is a it's a scary thing to have in the back of your mind that we need to be aware that part of loving ourselves and growing into um, stepping into embracing and loving our identity is knowing how to protect ourselves and knowing how to stay safe, because that's part of loving ourselves. There are so many things about my South Asian culture that I love. Let's start with the obvious one, food. In our culture, food is the most exciting part of our day. Food occupies a very large percentage of our thoughts. Or is that just me? Whether it's with Punjabi parathas, Bangla fish curries, Sri Lankan string hoppers, food is how we show our love for each other. For me, I also love South Asian clothing. The swish of silk saris 
as we walk to a wedding. The flicking of the pallu of a sari over the shoulders. That makes me feel sexy, very Indian. I love wearing tikkas and bindis. I adore how they sparkle under the light. How they can jazz up anything from designer langas to a denim outfit. The moment I stick a bindi on my forehead and pin a tikka on top of my hair, I instantly feel connected with generations of women who came before me. Our culture and the, the kind of richness of our culture, like for me, my culture is very much about the food and the festivals and the saris and the music. There is so much kind of richness. And I have all these memories of kind of growing up in India and playing holy and, you know, all of these things. And I wanted to ask you what your like memories or moments of really connecting with your culture were like, like one or two that you would you be happy to share with us? When I was little, I my mum used to teach me Indian dancing and twice a year, usually for Durga Puja and also for the medical college reunion, which was a big event in our calendar growing up we would put on a performance and my mum would choreograph and curate and many of us would get together and have these rehearsals. I mean, it was a proper show. Uh, and and just I just remember kind of getting dressed up in the saris and the, you know, the bells on my ankles and having the makeup and uh, just doing these performances that were colourful and joyous and brought enormous joy to the audience as well, watching as kids doing these performances. And I probably did that all the way until I was sort of 13, 14. I even remember doing an Indian dance at school for a, uh, a fundraising thing we did. And my mum and my mum cooked like 200 chicken legs <laughs> for that event. I remember, I remember going to I remember going to Asda and buying like, eight, you know, these massive like packs of chicken. Anyway, um, so that was that really was a way of connecting, I think, with with the culture. And then the other thing has to be food. I mean, uh, my mum was an incredible cook, and I I look I look at what I'm feeding my kids now, and I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm so sorry because I I had just the most amazing food growing up. It was, you know, rice and, and a vegetable dish and a meat dish every single day, pretty much. And I never tired of it. And when I went back to Bangladesh, what's really interesting is even though it's now, you know, Muslim Bangladesh and, and it's all split and but actually, the people are still Bengalis. Even the you know the people in Calcutta are Bengalis, and the people over there are Bengalis. And the and what really connected me to that was the food. I was in the absolute middle of nowhere, staying in this place called Luck, you know, Luck, Luck Me Poor. Had um, they didn't have a hotel, so well, it was a hotel, sort of inverted commas. Uh, our, our fixer had been round buying new towels and sheets and you know there was no showers it was a bucket bath and all of that and he did you know, the, the fixer had cleaned the whole place and I would say the food was some of the best I've ever ever had in my life it, you know in this tiny little rural village just beautiful and just brought me back to my childhood I mean there was the day that we filmed um going out on the boat on the river and they um, and and the local guys just they picked all these roots out of the river bed I don't even know what they were I don't think we have a word for them in English and they they went back to the hotel and they cooked it into this just incredible dish and I was like wow I mean you just wouldn't get that in restaurants here Everything revolved around food. I talk a lot about my gran, my grandma, uh, Dankor, who came to this country and the way she cooked and the smell of her food and how she used to use anchor butter for everything. Or just going to India and my my grandfather, um, my mum, my maternal grandfather was in the army. So they traveled around a lot. So my nanny mama made food from all over India. So we'd sit in, in Punjab, but we'd have idli dosa and we'd eat um, bani puri, but they'd bring the guy who was coming back past with the thing and they'd be like, <laughs> jala, jala, <laughs> yeah, char, like chard. Oh my God. And I cook. I love to cook and I cook Indian food and I have to cook it at least twice a week. I'm already planning. I'm making dal tonight. I'm just going to make a quick yellow dal because I'm going into town. I've got a couple of meetings and I'm just going to do a quick, Quick, something quick yeah. with a nice salad and a jar and jar. Oh, I love a jar. 
I've got so many jars, Punjabi picnic. I'm, I'm making brontas first thing in the morning. I'm being mortified, like being like, oh God, why can't we just have cheese sandwiches like everyone else? <laughs> you know, my mum once actually sent me to bloody school with um, Jana and Buri in my lunchbox. I was like, I, I mean, that's not <laughs> Uh, that's coming. Come on, mom. <laughs> Clothes. Oh, my Lord. I adore, adore, adore wearing saris. I don't think I feel more graceful or more feminine than I do when I'm in a sari. Hands down. I just feel Absolutely. different. As soon as I scrape that below over my shoulder, my shoulders go back and I sink into my feet a little bit more. And it's like I'm connected to that, you know, if you wore Asian clothes, then yeah, it's a... It's a dream of mine to wear a sari to a big award ceremony if I'm ever invited to one, you know, that would be great. I think you would. And the BAFTAs in a sari, in a silk sari. <laughs> in a Sabya Sachi. Sachi sari. Oh my God, yes. Absolutely. Oh yeah, food, clothes, um, language. I have a, such a intensely passionate like relationship with the music you know I start my day and I'll put on a song and I'll probably listen to it like 10 hours of music a day and I've I you know growing up in in Birmingham you know where a lot of Bangra uh, performance performers began Leeds Birmingham Redditch those kinds of ends um and I was just listening to these folks in secondary school and primary school and thinking that kind of music I like I can get behind that. I can get behind those beats. <laughs> they speak English. They speak Punjabi. Um, that resonates to me. And like, mm. I, there was, I don't think I had one other Punjabi person in my class. And I was in like a 98% South Asian school. And I was the only one listening to Punjabi music at that oh, point in time. Um, so that was just uniquely for me. Yeah. I think a lot of folks now listen to South Asian music. You know, I listen to a lot of Punjabi music. But Back then, it was not the thing. It was um, Akon and 50 Cent. <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah, I remember like Juggy D and Jay Sean and RDB like really resonating with me. Um, and I still listen to them guys now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were part of your life. 100%. Then, part of your life 100%. Now. Yeah, I really like that. I like, I like to think of you kind of going to your little school and yeah, yeah, listening yeah. to your music. Yeah, and... back my email phase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to have one of those, um, you know, those iPod Nanos. Yes, yeah. I remember. That. And my hair used to be long, so I would just tuck the the earbuds in whilst I was in class. The teacher <laughs> never once caught me. I remember I did my GCSEs exams like. <laughs> For me, it's food as well. Definitely food. Um, my One of my friends said the most beautiful thing about food, because when I um, was here in, when I was in London during lockdown and my flatmate went back to Scotland, I was isolating here. And, and I was like, oh, I really, I really like living alone. But then also it was, it was quite difficult being so far away from family for so long. And the thing that I was craving and missing was um, food, was our food. And, and, and I said, I don't know why, but my body is missing it. And I said, it's, it's, it's not just a hunger. There's something visceral that I'm missing. And my friend said, the reason that we feel complete when we eat our food is because we are craving our land. We are craving our homeland. And that food is from the land. The spices are from the land. You are imbibing things that are from our homeland. And it and I was like, oh, and it knits you back together. It puts you back together. There is something, it, there, is a, there is an alchemy there. There is a magic. And for me, it's language as well, because I lost my language. So Punjabi was my first language. My dad is Sindhi. Sindhi was his language, but he spoke Urdu. So in the house, my mum was speaking Punjabi and my dad was speaking Urdu. And Punjabi was our first language. And when we went to school, when we were at prep school, the teachers scared the pants out of my parents and said that we would be held back in class, that we would not develop and they only should speak English with us at home. And, and so that's what happened. And then later my mum was like, she's got six postgraduate degrees, she's so funny. And she was like, right, I'm going to train as a teacher. I'm just gonna, I, I don't think this is right. So I'm going to go do the research and I'll prove you wrong. And she did all the research and, you know, and won an award because she's great. And then was like, actually, no, this is great for cognitive development, emotional intelligence, you're a racist. But of course, by then we'd lost our language and it's been this knot 
in my head between my brain and my mouth and because it was colonized away my mother tongue and I haven't been able to get it back we've learned like French at school it didn't come back and it's only now when I'm learning Korean that something about an eastern language different alphabet the words some words are the same as Punjabi like the word for cry is the same as Punjabi the word for rain is it's bananas and like and now when I have a feeling whether I'm happy or sad or angry or whatever, the word that flies to the front of my brain is either Punjabi or it's Korean. Like it's unlocked something in my brain. And and, 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 and I feel it in my body. Like I feel something knitting back together when I say it. And, and I lost my father about 13 years ago and I never learned his language. And when I was in lockdown as well, I just had so much time to think and process a lot of things. And I tried to find um, apps and, and language learning tools for Cindy, which of course they don't have because it's quite, it's not, it's not really a widely spoken language. And then I found some YouTube videos where I could learn some phrases. And then I learned how to say hello and you are beautiful. Um, and I, when I said it out loud, because that's what I wanted to say to my father, something happened. It was like, ah, oh, Sankeet, it was like magic. Some I can't, I can't explain what happened in my body it's like all my life my body needed to say those words that were that were that were part of me that are in my bones in the bones and marrow of who you are that were part of you everyone that has come before you that stood in your bones and it is a physical feeling and that to me is like that is rooted in our culture that is rooted in who we are what you say is so important language is magic who we are is magic and it is it's like there's another self stood inside you that has so much to say as we come to the end of this episode i'd like to say something to all my south asian sisters let's clink those colorful bangles let's sashay in our saris and our salwars let's flash those kajal lined eyes Let's show off our bindis and tikkas and anything else we feel like. It's time for us, my sisters, to be loud, to be proud, to be bold, to be the bad beities that we truly are. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis, the studio, opening music by Sonny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty.